Heads and welcome to your weekly American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And today we're going to do a lightning news round because there weren't a lot of huge things that happened this week, just a bunch of, you know, events. We love covering events. We're an events focused podcast. So, uh, current events, Derek, yes. <laughs> current events. Yeah, that's uh, all the all the teens could listen to us and write their current events assignments for their that's junior right. high uh, and I high school. They're all plagiarizing from us. Oh, that's that's really the dream now, isn't it? So why don't we start with the uh, there's been some recent controversy about the potential opening of a Chinese naval base in Cambodia. And this is, of course, what many in the United States constantly claim to be worried about and all that good stuff. So, uh, Derek, what's been going on with China and Cambodia? Uh, so for some time now, all the way back, going all the way back to 2019, there's been scuttlebutt. The Wall Street Journal reported at the time, which uh, you know, take with a grain of salt, I suppose. But the, the good thing about the Wall Street Journal and uh, the Washington Post, I'm also going to reference here, is that when you see reporting in those papers, like on a story like this, you could be sure you're getting the unvarnished uh, laund or you know, sort of laundering of national security uh, talking points. So uh, it's helpful in that regard. Back in 2019, uh, the Wall Street Journal did a big expose on uh, the Reem Naval Base. I'm probably uh, maybe mispronouncing that. I apologize. In Cambodia, uh, which of course lies on um, the Thailand side of, of Southeast Asia, um, kind of opposite the the Sea of uh, or the the South China Sea, which is a major concern for freedom of navigation. And China has claims on it. It's very geopolitically relevant. The base has been due for a major expansion that is being heavily supported, financed by China. Uh, this Wall Street Journal expose was, uh, again, sort of taken, I think, you know, based on leaks or comments from uh, national security officials in the U.S., concern that part of the purpose of, of renovating this base was to create, uh, was to make part of it suitable for use by the Chinese Navy. So this has been a story uh, that's been going on for quite some time. Fast forward uh, earlier this week, the Washington Post, another fine outlet that will give you all the uh, latest scoop from inside the security, national security state, uh, claiming that a, an anonymous Chinese official, uh, again, you know, take this with as much grain, as many grains of salt as you want, uh, had confirmed many, many grains this week. Many uh, grains. had confirmed that the Chinese Navy is going to use part of this uh, part of the naval base once it's been rebuilt uh, as a naval base, as a as a base for its military uh, naval ships. As we said, an exclusive PRC military presence at Reem could threaten Cambodia's autonomy and undermine uh, regional security as well. This would mean that China has two overseas naval bases. They already have one uh, in Djibouti. So if this story is true, this would be a second. I know this is terrifying for the United States, which has we only, only have 750 like, uh, or 800 yeah, um, bases, overseas military bases. So it's obviously I'm not sleeping uh, you know, tonight, man. major concern. Um, 
they broke ground on the project. Uh, supposed to take about two years. They just broke ground on Wednesday. Uh, the Chinese ambassador was there because China is funding this uh, upgrade um, as an infrastructure project. Uh, so you know, make of that what you will. Uh, but there are. Uh, there's some tension here now between Cambodia and the United States and the United States continually sort of warning that um, this is going to be a Chinese naval base, Cambodia denying it. There's some issues under Cambodian law in terms of having a foreign country host a naval base on Cambodian soil. So that's uh, that could be an issue for the Cambodian government. Um, and of course, China, you know, sort of denying or not commenting on any of this stuff. Um, so that's, uh, uh, you know, I think, again, you know, sort of you, you're uh, worried about uh, China passing us. It's obviously a terrifying time uh, for the United States and it's it's. Uh, shell of an of an overseas <laughs> na- uh, base structure. Uh, Only seven hundred yeah. and forty eight more to go <laughs> before they surpass us. <laughs> Jake, could you insert like lightning flashes here, like thunderous lightning? I really want to give the vibe. Uh, all right, Derek, let's move on to the Sigar report on missing Afghanistan funds. And why don't you explain what Sigar is? Uh, so Sigar's the special, the U.S. Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. Uh, back when that was still a thing, uh, before the the United States pulled out and the Taliban took over, Sigar uh, was supposed to track uh, the progress of kind of rebuilding the Afghan military and uh, you know building an Afghan a functional Afghan government along with. Uh, where the money was going, where all the money the United States was sending for those purposes was going, uh, it's it's done a fairly commendable job, I have to say. As as these things go, it's it's been a pretty um, it, it's American been very prestige willing, endorses cigar. <laughs> cigar has been very willing to criticize the United States government for or, or the U.S. military for its failures, which I think is refreshing for one of these uh, bodies. It's not whitewashing anything, which uh, or it may be, but it's still you know it's not a total whitewash. So you got to give them some credit at least. Anyway, uh, there's a new report from Cigar that gets into the issue of the disappearing millions upon millions upon millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars, really, uh, from various Afghan treasuries or government offices during the collapse last year as the Taliban was taking over. It concluded that, yes, indeed, tens of millions of dollars, it can't get more specific than that, but tens of millions of dollars did go missing uh, from the Afghan government, from the coffers of the Afghan government as this, uh, you know, transition or sort of violent takeover, however you want to put it, was happening. Uh, the report did let a friend of the, the show, Ashraf Ghani, the former Afghan president, somewhat off the hook. You may recall potential there were third rumors. Mike. Yeah, potential third Mike. I mean, he's out there, right? He's, he's, he doesn't have a job. Yeah, he's uh, looking give for us work. A call. Um, so you may recall there were rumors that he had stuffed like $150 million into a bunch of helicopters and cars and like just took, you know, this vast amount of money with him. Uh, according to Sigar, and again, you know, you, you can, you can, um, dispute this, I guess, but, but they haven't pulled their punches that much, uh, over the years. Uh, so according to Sigar, he likely made off, he did make off with some money, but probably less than a million dollars and maybe only around a, f- a half a million dollars. So thoughts and prayers go out to him, obviously, uh, in these trying times. Uh, but assuming that that's true, then the question becomes, well, who did make off with all this money? And the answer is we don't really know. And the fact, uh, the, the loss of, or inaccessibility of things like surveillance footage, 
footage where you could monitor, say, the offices of the or see what happened in the offices of Afghanistan's National Directorate of Security, its main intelligence agency, where there were some, I think, $70 million stashed that, that went missing. The fact that all that stuff is, if it still exists, like record keeping and surveillance footage, if it still exists at all, it's in Taliban hands and they're probably not going to share it. You know, I mean, who knows if you sort of, you know, if we finally get to the point of recognizing that government and and uh, engaging with them diplomatically, you could get some of this stuff, but uh, seems unlikely at this point. So any investigation into who did make off with this money is going to be hampered pretty substantially by the uh, lack of uh, you know ability to track. Another lightning, Jake. Let's move on to uh, the International Atomic Energy Agency's censure of Iran and what this might mean for nuclear monitoring. So uh, the IAEA voted... Uh, on Wednesday, the Board of Governors, uh, they're, they're having a, a Board of Governors meeting this week. They voted 30 to 2. The two no votes were Russia and China, and three countries abstained to censure Iran. The censure was over the IAEA's unanswered questions. Uh, their inspectors have found traces of enriched uranium in three sites that uh, Iran has not declared as nuclear sites. So there's really no good reason why there should be traces of enriched uranium in these places. Uh, they've been, you know, pressing Iran for answers as to why these traces showed up in these places, which is part of their responsibility you know, in terms of monitoring uh, Iran's nuclear program and, and getting answers about its past nuclear activities, which could uh, shed some light on how close they might be should they uh, you know, lose their minds and decide to go for a nuclear weapon. Well, it's not lose their minds, I guess, but uh, to, to, to go for one would be kind of dumb. But anyway, the Iranians haven't really provided any answers, uh, at least none that are uh, have, you know, kind of uh, met the IAEA's uh, satisfaction. And so the Board of Governors pushed by the United States and uh, the UK, France, Germany, uh, voted on this censure resolution. It's fairly mild. It doesn't call for any punishment. It doesn't call for, uh, you know, the, the matter to be referred to the UN Security Council or anything like that. So it, it, it winds up being uh, more or less a scolding. Nevertheless, uh, the Iranians have responded angrily. They installed at least one new uh, centrifuge cascade at Natanz, which is probably probably on the schedule anyway, but they may have timed it to, to sort of coincide with this censure. Iran has dismantled a number of cameras installed by a UN watchdog at a nuclear site, which it says have been operating beyond the safeguards agreement with the IAEA. They've already disconnected two of the IAEA's monitoring cameras, which are in, in, in placed uh, in sensitive facilities, declared nuclear facilities to sort of keep an eye on what's going on. Supposedly, according to the IAEA, they're going to uh, uh, take Take out another 27 or maybe another 25 and a 27 total. I'm not entirely clear. Um, so that that is a big deal. If the Iranians do this, they're going to pull themselves almost entirely out of the one aspect of the 2015 nuclear deal that they've continued to more or less uh, sustain, which is the inspections and monitoring component. Uh, and it, it will be all the more difficult to revive that deal. I, I think the chances of reviving it at this point, because uh, the Biden administration has sort of allowed, the, allowed it to fester this long, the chances are pretty minimal. Uh, it's clear that, that the, the administration doesn't want to 
face any political consequences for doing so. So that's that that reduces the chances substantially. This would uh, you know take those chances down still further, and I think you start to get to the point where the question is not you know how does this affect a potential revival of the nuclear deal, but uh, rather, you know, is this going to end in airstrikes with on, on Iranian nuclear facilities? Jesus I mean, the Israelis have have been drilling on, you know, the Israeli military has been drilling on what they call long range uh, airstrike uh, operations, which could imply that they're preparing to do something. The United States, uh, you know, if the the thing falls apart, the Biden administration, the, the the talks on the deal fall apart completely. The Biden administration has talked about, you know, we we're not going to let Iran get a, a nuclear weapon, which is not to say that they've, you know, they're trying to get one, but um, you know that that implies a military option being on the table as well. So I, I think we may be at the point where we're actually closer to. Uh, some kind of a, a military action than we are to a revival of the nuclear deal. Not to say that either of those things is a particularly high percentage uh, of happening, but um, that would be a, a switch. Up until this point, I would have said, you know, probably more likely that the deal gets revived, but I'm not so sure about that anymore. So you just mentioned Israel, and there's recently been a failed Israeli vote on settlements. And, and, and could you talk about what effect that might have on the political coalition that has recently developed there? So the vote uh, on Monday was a, a relatively routine vote. It's one that um, happens fairly regularly. It's, it's sort of pro forma for any governing coalition that wants to remain in power. It was on an extension of the special legal status that uh, Israel's settlements in the West Bank have. Uh, so basically, this is, you know, since since the settlement started to be built after the 1967 Six-Day War, uh, they've held a, a sort of unique legal status in that they are considered to be under Israeli law rather than military rule or military law as the rest of the occupied territories are considered to be. That status has to be renewed, um, I think annually. I'm not completely sure on that, but uh, it does have to be renewed legislatively. Uh, and th this time around in the vote on Monday, the coalition was unable to pass a renewal of the special legal status. Uh, this is because, in part, the coalition is so broad, it includes uh, everything from pro-settlement parties to leftist parties to uh, one Arab party, the United Arab List, all united basically by a strong desire not to see Benjamin Netanyahu become Israeli prime minister again. Netanyahu is the leader of the op opposition, effectively. Uh, his Likud party is the largest opposition party now in, in the Israeli Knesset. They all voted, the, the opposition voted uh, en masse, including Netanyahu and Likud, uh, not to renew the special legal status. This is not because Netanyahu has suddenly become a dove on the issue of settlements. It's because uh, he saw a way to deal a, a very serious blow to the coalition. Uh, already, one of the, the sort of right-wing constituent parties in the coalition has said uh, if the co if we can't get this special legal status renewed, which they have until the end of June, uh, I believe, to do that, if the at least one of their parties has already said, if we can't get this renewed, we will pull out of the coalition. If that happens, I think I think the coalition is likely to collapse. There will probably be a no confidence vote. Uh, I don't feel strongly about their chances of of winning it or surviving it. Um, the other question, apart from 
the cohesion of the the coalition. Uh, and if it falls apart, you're likely looking at a, another snap election. Uh, maybe Netanyahu coming, you know, doing well enough. Like who doing well enough that, that Netanyahu comes back into power or uh, resumes the prime ministership, which would be. Uh, well, you know, depends on your perspective, I guess. Aside from that, aside from the political issue, there is this question of what's going to happen to the settlements. Uh, they could come uh, under military rule, which the settlers would, the settlers and the settler parties, um, which hold a, a great deal of political sway in Israel, uh, are, you know, dead set against. They want to remain and, you know, continue the special legal status. Um, but, Again, Netanyahu and the opposition has some some reason to to block this if they can uh, through the end of the month because that could could be Netanyahu's pathway back to power. So it's an interesting dynamic. Uh, I would imagine that if Netanyahu f- follows through on this and continues to block and is successful, uh, he will take some criticism from what could be considered his base, uh, his pro settler base, uh, for having allowed the special legal status to lapse. Uh, maybe they'll come up with some kind of compromise, temporary compromise. I don't know, but it's uh, it's a very interesting political situation and one that um, you know I think is is uh, worth watching. So let's move to Ukraine, and, and particularly Derek, could you let us know about what's been going on with food exports and then just the general situation in the Donbas? Yeah, I mean, as as we've talked about on the show, and as people are undoubtedly aware, the war in Ukraine has done a number on global food prices and global food supplies, affecting especially uh, countries in the global south and Africa and and parts of Asia. Uh, Ukraine is a major supplier of grain, wheat, corn, uh, and also cooking oil, as is Russia, and their exports have also been affected uh, by the war. So there's been uh, increasingly... Uh, pressure from the United Nations and from, uh, you know, the head of the African Union who just visited uh, Russia, I think, last week to talk about uh, opening grain shipments. Um, the latest on this is that Sergei Lavrov, the, the foreign minister of Russia, visited Turkey. He met with Mevlut uh, Chavusoglu, uh, Chavusoglu, excuse me, uh, the uh, foreign minister of Turkey. Uh, to discuss this issue, Turkey wants to get involved as sort of a, you know, to sort of throw its weight around and uh, as the guarantor of a, an agreement to open a, a sea lane for Ukrainian uh, grain exports, at least. Experts say more than 20 million tons of harvested grain is stuck with serious implications for global hunger. They, the two of them seem to have come to an agreement, but they came to an agreement on what was basically a list of uh, Russian demands. And the Russians have said, we're open to allowing these uh, exports to resume and allowing Ukrainian food products to get to market uh, by sea, which would be the most efficient way of doing it. Uh, but we have a couple of demands. One, we want Western sanctions reduced. Uh, and two, we want the Ukrainian military to demine the Black Sea. Uh, needless to say, Western governments are not interested in reducing sanctions on Russia, which have taken on a life of their own really beyond uh, the war. And the Ukrainians really fear that if they demine the Black Sea, the Russian Navy is going to take advantage of that. Now, the Russians have uh, pinky swore and Vladimir Putin promised not to, uh, that they would not exploit any advantage caused by demining. They would just allow these ships very graciously, allow these ships to leave. For some reason, the Ukrainians, uh, I think, don't believe them. I can't imagine why. And so this is an impasse and it's going to continue to be an impasse. Uh, It's led to accusations uh, from the West that 
um, you know, Russia is weaponizing food or that they're stealing Ukrainian grain, which they may be moving some Ukrainian grain that in their possession to places like Crimea. Uh, it's unclear. But uh, so that's that's going to be, I think, an, a, a bigger and bigger issue the longer this conflict rolls on in terms of um, the effect it has on, on global food shortages and, and you know, creates or exacerbates problems around the world. Um, and there's no real obvious solution to this in sight. There's a, there's another question of, you know, could we get this stuff out of Ukraine by rail? Logistically, that would be very difficult. Sea uh, Going by sea is really the best way, but Russia has... Uh, the Ukrainian coast uh, blockaded, and and again they've you know they've offered these um, th- they've offered to allow the shipments out in return for these things that I don't think anybody's interested in uh, in giving them these demands that nobody's interested in meeting. Uh, in terms of the situation in the Donbass, which we can cover uh, fairly briefly, uh, the Russians are continuing to advance. There was a counterattack over the weekend or counteroffensive by the Ukrainians in Severodonetsk, the, the city that's been at the center of fighting in the Donbass for uh, a couple of weeks now. Uh, there, they did undertake a counteroffensive that had that at the weekend seemed to have pushed the Russians back somewhat. There were reports that they were only in control of about half of the city where previously we were talking about two-thirds to three-quarters of the city in Russian hands. Uh, That counteroffensive seems to have petered out. And as of uh, Wednesday, uh, the governor of Ukraine's Luhansk region, uh, uh, Serhii Hadai, uh, Haidai, excuse me, uh, reported that Ukrainian forces have been driven now to the outskirts of the city. Uh, so that's likely, Severodonetsk is likely to come under Russian control fully uh, in the coming days or maybe a week or two. Uh, they will move on to kind of mop up the rest of Luhansk Oblast and then I think uh, focus on the parts of Donetsk Oblast that are not already in their hands. Um, from there, they may you know move on to cities like Zaporizhia, uh, or the um, Dnipro, Dnipro, or uh, perhaps uh, you know make another move on Odessa, I guess, which is the one uh, Black Sea port city that that uh, Ukraine still holds. But it's uh, uh, definitely the Russians are, are are moving. They're moving slowly, uh, but they are uh, back on the offensive. So why don't we end with a brief discussion of the Summit of the Americas meeting and the Biden administration's approach to Latin America foreign policy in the world? Uh, so the Summit of the Americas uh, in Los Angeles. We weren't this year. invited, Derek. Uh, I, we I weren't invited. Media. No, it's very unfortunate. It it started on Monday. The sort of preliminary events. There's a private sector component to this, where business leaders come together and uh, you know sort of talk about um, how they can make each other richer. Uh, or how they can exploit one another better, I guess. But the main event began on Wednesday, and it began somewhat embarrassingly, I think, for the Biden administration uh, with the absence of not only Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, uh, but also the leaders of the so-called Northern Triangle states, that's El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. Uh, Now, AMLO uh, skipped uh, explicitly because the Biden administration chose not to invite 
the leaders of Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. Uh, he had made it. He's made it clear for. He had made it clear for weeks that if if the Biden administration didn't invite everybody, he wasn't going to attend. He would send his foreign minister, but really, you know, he wasn't going to uh, going to waste his time. Uh, with the Northern Triangle states also not attending, and I don't think that they they're all. Uh, you know, Gilmar Castro maybe. Uh, skipped because of the the Cuba Nicaragua Venezuela sub uh, snubbing but I'm not sure uh, I I don't think that was the case for the other two I'm not sure w- the reasons for them skipping but uh, the Biden administration had had said going into the summit that one of the big issues it wanted to tackle was migration at the southern US border from Central America uh, well, you have uh, precisely zero of the leaders who could make decisions uh, affecting migration. None of the Northern Triangle states, no Mexican president, uh, none of them are attending. I don't see a, a problem, couple of them, Derek. Couple this is too of negative. Sent, sort of sort of <laughs> subordinate representation. Uh, but you're you're clearly not going to get anything done. Now, Kamala Harris, U.S. vice president, earlier in the week, uh, you know, she was meeting with some of the business leaders, announced some new private sector investment in Central America. I, I, I've seen different amounts, somewhere around $2 billion, all the way up to like 3 or $3.2 billion. Uh, in new private in sector investment in Central America that's supposed to uh, help stem migration, I guess by creating jobs. Uh, I, I would say uh, if private sector investment in Central American uh, manufacturing, let's say, was going to going to stem the tide of migration, it would already have done so. Uh, but who knows? Uh, so there is some movement in a, the private sector, assuming those pledges are fulfilled. But in terms of policy uh, or anything like that, I think you're looking at uh, no progress whatsoever being made. Um uh, the the thing that I want to end on here is Biden's opening remarks on Wednesday, where he unveiled something that's called the America's Partnership for Economic Prosperity. Um, I, I we wish should I apply could tell for you, funds. We missed I, out I, on I the podcast funds you, earlier. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I wish I could say what this was, but I don't know, and I don't think I'm not sure that the administration knows. I think this was a a slogan or a name that they announced without actually having much of a plan for what it's going to be. What we know is that it doesn't include anything like tariff relief for the countries participating or who might participate in this partnership. So it's not a free trade agreement. Um, initially, it's only going to be rolled out to countries that already have trade agreements with the U.S. So uh, again, it's unclear what it would add uh, to those things. Uh, Biden talked about and other people in the administration have talked about, uh, you know, vaguely about strengthening regional supply chains and, uh, you know, greater U.S. engagement with Latin America, which I'm sure is thrilling to the people of Latin America because they don't get enough U.S. engagement as it is and haven't gotten enough over the last 200 years. So I, it's, it's unclear to me what is actually going on here, but I do see parallels to the, you may recall last month when Biden uh, visited uh, Japan and you know welcomed a number of I- leaders from the Indo-Pacific to to talk about uh, vaguely what he's what the administration called the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, which they also rolled out without explaining really what it was, uh, except to say that it's not a free trade agreement because free trade agreements are politically difficult uh, in the United States to sell. Uh, I, I don't. I think there's a parallel here with the America's Partnership for Economic Prosperity in that it seems like the 
the administration is intending to go into these places where it's competing very heavily with China and losing to some degree, you know, in terms of trade relations. There was just a report that uh, I think on Wednesday that, uh, you know, China is outpacing. Uh, it's like bra- opening up a, a huge gap with uh, every Latin American country other than Mexico, basically, in terms of its economic relationship uh, versus the United States. So it's going into these places like the Indo-Pacific, like Latin America, where it's losing to a large extent to China economically uh, and kind of unveiling these fancy sounding things that don't have a lot of meat to the meat on them because the administration doesn't really know what to do with it. But the expectation is that you sort of dazzle regional leaders with a name and uh, with the United States and its reputation and some promises that we care. Uh, and that's going to be enough to sort of rejigger the, the geopolitical uh, hierarchy in these places, which, uh, uh, you know, I think is um, a sign of just how empty <laughs> and it's like it's an extension of domestic politics into foreign affairs in terms of like we don't have any answers for you like we got nothing yeah. uh, you know if you're in the Indo-Pacific we don't have anything for it's you really but we have a name yeah. and and a thing and, and it's the United States and you like the United States right so you know just uh, just go along <laughs> with it and the same thing in Latin America it's there's no substance to this stuff there's no no sense of like we could do something to make things better uh we're just here and like you know that that should be enough that's all we can offer really uh and it's it's sort of depressing in a way i mean i'm not like uh you know uh i i don't know how to describe it really it's just sort of like pathetic on some level to see the u.s go out like this and i i don't want the u.s to go out you know, militarily, which is also a possibility as the empire dies, uh, you know, it'd be fun to see uh, Trump 2024 and where that leads us. Uh, but uh, it, it really is kind of fascinating to watch this kind of going away in this very depressing way in this very kind of low key, uh, you know, we, we can't do anything. We, we got nothing. Okay, that's that's the end of that. It's it, you know going out like a mouse was not something I expected to happen. But that's, well, that's why like. that's why we elected President Joseph Biden. And on that happy note, Derek, thank you so much. <laughs> Everyone enjoy our interview with Samuel Unicky uh, and we'll be back next week. Bye. Bye-bye. Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison, and we are excited, we are ecstatic to be joined by Samuel Unicky. Samuel is a great historian and a friend of mine, and he's also an assistant professor at George Mason University and the author of his, his apocal first book, States of Liberation, Gay Men Between Dictatorship and Democracy in Cold War Germany, which was recently published by the University of Toronto Press and has been selling an enormous amount. So please, if you haven't got it, please go out and buy it now. Samuel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, so before we get into the actual historical detail, I was wondering if you wouldn't mind, uh, and this is just because I'm an interested observer, giving sort of a state on the history of sexuality, on the history of gay men and how it's come to be in the last 10, 20 years. And the reason that I'm interested in this, I remember reading Gay New York as an undergraduate, um, and it was a really, really great book. I really loved it. It was a great storytelling and all that. 
And I've always been interested in the field, but it's not a field that I've been professionally in. So could you maybe just give a sense of of where this field has been, where it comes from? Because it's not something Mm -hmm. that we've discussed on the podcast before. Yeah. I mean, so basically what's interesting about the history of sexuality, um, which is slightly different from gay history or queer history, but they're obviously very much interrelated or, or connected, is you know, in some ways, it really gets its start in sort of the 70s, 80s. I mean, Michel Foucault's uh, The History of Sexuality, um, which gets translated into English in 75, I believe, uh, is really still sort of the the touchstone of the field. I mean, there are a lot of people in the field who sort of <laughs> hate Foucault. So, um, but, but well, you it's got still, it. You got yeah. to reject the founder. That's well, right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's still something that I teach. It's, it's still something a lot of people teach when I took history of sexuality as, an, as a graduate student. Um, we, we started with Foucault. And so that really, in, in some ways, sort of created the questions. Um, and, and really, I mean, the, the thing that Foucault was so brilliant about doing is that he gave sexuality um, historical meaning and, and significance, right? Uh, I think before that, a lot of people would have dismissed sexuality as something that is sort of purely a private affair. Maybe it's something that belongs in the realm of sociology or psychology, but it's not something that's historical. It's not something that relates to political questions or sort of larger social or, or cultural questions. And what Foucault really did in the history of sexuality was to make sexuality sort of a marker of modernity and sort of the linchpin of how modern governments and societies regulate themselves and govern themselves. Uh, and so that's, you know, where the idea of biopolitics comes in, which is still hugely fruitful and and sort of... Could you, you maybe know, explain what that is? Because I feel like oh, that's yeah. a term that people throw around um, and it's not easily explainable. So could you just illuminate oh, what yeah. biopolitics actually is? Basically, what Foucault posited was that pre-modern governments were largely defined by their ability to kill or to take life away, and that modern governments, in contrast, were very interested in multiplying life and creating sort of healthy populations. In various points, he sort of alludes to this being related to capitalism, right? You want a healthy body of workers who can go and work in the factory, and you don't want to sort of be killing them off. And so this is where uh, eugenics comes from. This is where various pronatalist policies come from. Um, sort of, it's tied up with social Darwinism. There's basically the notion that governments start getting interested in how can we more effectively uh, make our subjects or our citizens healthy? How can we get them to reproduce in large numbers? Uh, and so that's really what he means by biopolitics. It's it's this new way of governing. And, and, and it sort of enables or allows governments to intrude into private lives in a much more uh, robust way, right? Governments start being interested in what people are eating, you know, whether or not they're exercising, uh, at least in the 20th century, right? That becomes a thing. What sort of air they're breathing, right? This is eventually where environmental regulations come from. Um, and very much, you know, importantly for, for Foucault, what kind of sex they're having, right? Is Are they having productive sex, you know, quote-unquote, productive sex that will lead to children, to healthy children? Are they having sex that will lead them to get venereal diseases, which would be a sort of negative in this model? So that that's what the term biopolitics means. And that's really, I think, at the core or at, at the basis of how Foucault gives sexuality this significance in the modern world and in modern history. And I think that relates very well to what I take. You know, you know in, in some sense, you could boil down the great thinkers to like one 
really good <laughs> idea, like Marx and Weber. And I think Foucault is in that category in the sense of his focus on knowledge power, his focus mm-hmm. on classification as a means of exerting force. You could see how that's very evident in the history of sexuality and how that relates right. to sort of this this hinge point moments that he locates at very, in various times, right. through, <laughs> often including language, uh, particularly when translated into English, um, the importance of sexuality. And, and I think that's that's really crucial. And and and, and thank you, Samuel, for yeah. uh, that perfect um, that perfect explanation. So 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 please continue. Yeah, but so so that's sort of where we start. And and the other when it comes to sexuality, basically what Foucault says is that this new interest in regulating sort of the personal lives of citizens and subjects that is what leads to sexual identity. So, and this was sort of revolutionary. This is how it became historicized, how sexuality becomes historicized. Basically by saying homosexuality in particular isn't a historical constant. If we look back at the ancient Greeks or if we look to Florence in uh, the Renaissance period, we don't have homosexuals in the same way that we do today, right? There aren't gay people back then. There are men who are having sex with men and women who are having sex with women, but they don't identify in this way. And basically what Foucault says is it's out of this concern or preoccupation with uh, sort of quote-unquote healthy sex in the 19th century that these sexual identities arise. And so, in some sense, the first big debate in the history of sexuality was between people like Foucault, who are called uh, social constructionists, who basically posited that identities of all forms, but in particular sexual identities, were constructed, were socially constructed. Um, And against them were people who were called essentialists. Um, and the essentialists basically said that, that these identities were essential, that they, they were trans-historical. And really, um, there aren't a lot of people who actually hold this view, right? It, it's sort of a straw man that the, that the constructionists use to argue against. So the only person who's really sort of an essentialist is uh, this scholar, John Boswell, who um, publishes a very famous book that, again, I still teach. It's called Christianity, Social Tolerance, and Homosexuality. Uh, And it's basically about gay men in the Middle Ages uh, and making sort of a case that there were gay people in the Middle Ages and that there were sort of identifiable gay sort of subcultures and, and, you know, cultures and and, and, uh, writings and so on. Um, And that's really the only, that's sort of the most aggressive formulation of essentialism, but really social constructionism is what wins the day very easily. It's not a hard argument, I think, for to get historians on board with that something changes over time, right? We all love sort of change over time. And and there, there is compelling evidence that Foucault and other historians pointed to that these identities do in fact shift over time. So I do want to get into the historiography a bit more, but how does that track with the sort of born this way politics right. of contemporary liberalism? Because that seems to be, it's not quite essentialist because it's not denying culture, but I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, this is something that I find really ironic, right? That in the last 20 years, when we've had this incredible success of sort of the LGBTQ rights movement in the U.S. and in other Western countries, that has been the moment when this sort of social constructionism has really solidified its hold on academic understandings of sexuality. And so 
you, right, these I, they are in conflict, right? I think that we have on the one hand the notion that gay people have sort of always existed, that they are, as you say, born this way, right? That it's a congenital sort of um, status, it's a congenital identity. Uh, and then in contrast to that, you have this sort of historicization of these identities. And I think there are ways of reconciling them, right? I mean, I think you can have a sort of an essentialist who sort of says, yes, what it means to be a man who has sex with men changes over time. That doesn't deny the fact that there are men who are sexually attracted to men or women who are sexually attracted to women. Um, Similarly, uh, you can have someone who is a constructionist, but doesn't sort of, isn't a constructionist all the way down, right? They admit that there's maybe some essential element to these desires or, or attractions. Um, actually, in, in terms of trans, trans history and trans politics, uh, my understanding, it's not, that's not a field that I'm super involved in. I mean, by virtue of being a historian of sexuality, I'm sort of tangentially in, involved. It in must those. be a relatively new field, I imagine. It is. A, it's a relatively new field. Right. That's correct. Um, it's a field that's really growing. There's a lot of really exciting work um, being done in it. They, these are texts that I, I do teach. I sometimes review them. Um, but it's not something where I've yet done any research myself. I haven't published in the field. So that's sort of the grain of salt. But my understanding is that there is a real tension among us uh, between sort of trans activists who really adopt a sort of essentialist framing and, um, you know, sort of feminist scholars and queer scholars who really adopt a sort of radical version of, of constructionism. And there is a sort of tension there. Um, and again, it's not, I am not familiar enough with that tension to sort of go into detail, but I think for whatever reasons that has been sort of, elided when it comes to the gay movement. I think um, a lot of the historians who have done history of sexuality, uh, many of them were at least tangentially involved in in gay politics and and sort of the politics of gay liberation in the U.S. um, and in Germany and other countries. And I think there's maybe a sort of pragmatism of of acknowledging that, yes, these things change over time, but also this is an effective rhetorical strategy, right, to to sort of get the rights that, that we're demanding. The other thing I would say is that I think what Foucault did and what other historians sort of picked up on to historicize um, sexuality was also to point out that the sort of persecution of sexual minorities wasn't a historical constant. It wasn't inevitable. And that, I think, did sort of give an impetus to these movements, a sort of historical grounding or a sort of historical understanding of themselves as not fighting against some sort of trans-historical animus that had always been there and would always be there, but rather that they were undertaking to change society in a way that it had already changed before, um, if that makes sense. No, that totally makes sense. So where would you say your work fits into this literature? Like, where does the millennial come in? Because you were basically describing boomer and Gen X approaches. And so I imagine there's been a shift, as there is in all the fields, um, because of millennials coming into into power. (laughs) Yes. So how does that that work? (laughs) So I think there um, there are a few shifts. I mean, I think what my book is trying to do, and... It's in a scholarship, you know, it's, it's not the only book that's trying to do this. There's a set of books and, and scholars who are trying to do this, is to start taking the state more seriously as a sort of piece of the puzzle in the history of sexuality. Um, basically, again, starting with Foucault, and, and we'll get away from Foucault at some point, but... Uh, Never. He, he 
he is not a theorist of the state. And this is something I've sort of written about a little bit elsewhere. But he really is quite antagonistic to the state. I mean, he has this whole idea of governmentality and the art of governance, but he sees that as sort of this operation of power um, by which he means sort of the norms that uh, exist in sort of interpersonal connections that and that govern everyday activity, right? He's much more interested in how people sort of govern themselves um, and how they sort of relate to each other than he is in terms of hierarchical power or sovereignty. And so starting that, with- and, and just, uh, Samuel, just a quick question. Is this the, this is Foucault as a neoliberalism critique that you often hear? Like Foucault lays intellectual groundwork for neoliberalism. That's, they're related. I don't, so I- yeah, they're related, but I don't think that they're dependent on it. I think if you believe that Foucault is a neoliberal, you have to believe the argument that I just laid out. I don't think the necessary consequence of the argument I just laid out is that Foucault is a neoliberal. Got it. Um, Got it. There are certainly passages you can look at and say, yes, Foucault says the state is unnecessary. And, I, and that's sort of where you get the neoliberalism argument. I think there are other places you can look, and, and Foucault isn't saying that the state isn't you know, he's not saying that it's unnecessary, but he is not interested in the intellectual projects of the state. It's not where he thinks the exciting things in modernity are happening. Right. I guess that's how I would put it. Which, and, and it's, I mean, just everyone's a product of their age in a sense. And so right. he's writing in this moment where there's increasing skepticism of the state, right. this new deal to neoliberal transition. Exactly. And and that, yeah, no, exactly. And he's not the only intellectual to be influenced by this. If we look at sort of the broader trajectories of the left, those are there. Um, And so that's, and that certainly inflects how both gay activists think, right? There's a strongly anti-statist element to queer activism. Um, And it's not every movement. It's, and it's, you know, they do it in different ways. But I think that there is that element of conceiving of queer rights as something to be gotten sort of in opposition to the state rather than the state being a sort of productive interlocutor yeah, of, potential guarantor things like that. right exactly and actually i mean you know i'm sure we'll get into this later but the book sort of looks at where the state fits in comparing east and west germany and sort of different models of this gay activism but so so the state basically isn't taken that seriously in a lot of queer scholarship um it might be there as a sort of source of homophobia or transphobia it might sort of be there as a almost invisible hand that, you know, you know, it, there are certain laws or certain regulations that are influencing whatever it is that the book has at, as its subject of interest. But for a long time, the creation of identity was really where the history of sexuality was. And that's, you know, if you look at um, Gay New York, for instance, which you brought up, it's a great example of this. Basically, his argument is one that there's the sort of the state around the edges at, at places, but it's really about queer life in New York City and making the case that, first of all, there were queer people in New York, um, you know, that, that, that we don't just sort of have uh, a blank slate of homophobia stretching back to time immemorial, but also sort of in contrast to Foucault, what um, what Chauncey is doing in Gay New York is to say uh, men were having sex with men, but they did not necessarily identify as homosexual, right? They had other identities that they, that sort of, um, they used to define themselves and think about their, their sexual activity. And so again, it's both of a piece with Foucault making this sort of social constructionist argument, but also differing from Foucault in terms of where he's dating that change, um, sort of where 
these broader and messier forms of queerness become isolated into homosexuality, uh, if that makes sense. So, and and so that that question of identity really does dominate the field um, in the history of sexuality for quite some time. And so, what I'm starting to try to push into the conversation is the role of the state, uh, and and not just around the state's involvement with identity creation, but the state as sort of an interlocutor with queer people. How is the state thinking about queer people, and how does that influence their lives, and how do queer people think about the state and sort of represent themselves to the state, um, and how how does that impact their lives? So Samuel, just a quick question. Queer is a trans-historical category? Yes, so, right. Oh, that, could you go yeah. into that, because that's very interesting. <laughs> Yeah, and that's so queer. Basically, you know, it obviously. And, and to our listeners, I promise we will get to Germany. But <laughs> I'm just so fascinated by the field; I just want to know more. So yeah, no, no, this, this is great. I mean, um, so queer, right? I mean, queer obviously used to be a slur. It um, has been sort of reclaimed. And interestingly, I still have students um, who will tell me, "Oh, I'm I'm uncomfortable with queer. I'm un- uncomfortable with that word," uh, and I just, you know we have sort of conversation about what it has come to mean. And so it also has evolved academically as well as sort of in popular parlance and and politically. And politically today, it really, it, it is both a umbrella category for people who in some way identify as being sexually non-normative or sort of uh, identify as a non-normative gender. I mean, that's where you get the idea of like being genderqueer. Um, And so it is that umbrella category, but it also has this political resonance of intentionally being non-normative, right? So if you are a gay man who wants to basically assimilate into the mainstream, right? You want to get married and have 2.5 kids and a white picket fence and vote for the Republican Party, um, and there are obviously gay men like that, then you would not identify as queer, right? You, You wouldn't identify as somehow challenging the status quo through your sexuality or through um, your, your gender identity. So that's sort of what queer means in, in the mainstream. In academic parlance, you get queer theory starting to emerge as a field in the 1990s. And it sort of um, it has various roots. Foucault is one of the roots, um, and then various critiques of Foucault. Uh, as the um, historian Heather Love, uh, or queer theorist Heather Love, has recently uh, written about, it also emerges from various strands of sociology, um, sort of in investigating quote-unquote deviance and, and sort of sociological investigations into gay subcultures. Um, it also comes out very strongly of literary theory um, and various other sort of post-structuralist theories. And so basically queer theory... What about critical theory? As a Germanist, is critical theory important here? Um, not really i at least not to my knowledge i think there there's certainly people who do queer theory and critical theory it's not something i'm super familiar with i will admit and i think you know i guess the main person i think of i guess it, it depends on what you mean by critical theory since that term has also become sort of warped and or or much applied in the last decade or 5 years it's much more figures like foucault derrida you know that sort of set of of more te- more French philosophers who really influence who are influenced theory. by the Frankfurt School. That's true. Are not. I. Um, you wouldn't. It's not critical theory. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. Um, Foucault yeah. had a very early encounter with the Frankfurt School, I believe, in the fifties. That sounds right, but they're not. You know, 
it's it's really the linguistic turn that sort of informs queer theory, right? It's the instability of language. And I think I always think of Habermas as sort of the the great inheritor of the Frankfurt School. And I mean, he of course hates these people, right? right. It's completely <laughs> the opposite of his project of sort of rational discourse and so on. Um yeah, I feel like they're both like different ways. I mean, the Frankfurt School, there's so many of them. You could you could right. go more Neumann, Kirchheimer, you could go more Adorno, Benjamin. I mean, Benjamin wasn't really a well, member, that's a miss. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I mean Benjamin Benjamin is certainly influential to queer theorists, but I wouldn't sort of I mean, he of course dies um in the thirties and or in the Yeah, he he died he kills himself the, on the border of Spain. Yeah, of, of Spain. Is it in thirty 30- it must have been. I, 40. Think it, I think it's 40, 40, 40. 41, yeah, I yeah. think. That sounds right. Yeah. Um, but but during World War II uh, and fleeing fleeing the Nazis. So um, but queer theory basically emerges out of this sort of concatenation of different influences in the 90s um, and has sort of evolved and basically really has come to stand for a radical form of scholarly non-normativity. Um, so basically challenging any standard narrative, definition, identity, um, whatever. And that that sort of extreme skepticism that stands or extreme form of critique that is at the root of queer theory um, has been really beneficial and, again, allows, I think, you know, queer theorists and other people who do sort of use queer methodology, whether that's historians of sexuality or people in other fields, um, to sort of get under the hood of various institutions, norms, social practices, so on and so forth. But it also can make it quite difficult to get past criticism and talk about anything in a productive or positive way. And this is, again, something that I talk about in the book and elsewhere. Um, It's something that other people like Heather Love in her recent book starts to talk about. And I think that's where, I think it's connected to the place of the state, right? This sort of extreme form of critique very easily looks at the state and sees it simply as a locus of sort of violence and oppression. Um, And any policy that any state ever has ever you know sort of promulgated or tried to implement has had problems right i mean it's it's impossible to imagine a state not <laughs> having uh difficulties in in applying any sort of policy whatever it is and so it's very easy if if your main mode of engagement with material is critique to focus on those problems and in, instead of sort of looking at a, a bigger picture and so those are in some ways the two i guess interventions that i'm i'm trying to make is to reinsert the state into the conversation in not only a critical capacity, but also a sort of a a productive um, capacity. And to sort of say, yes, critique is all well and good. We we need it, but we also need to be able to um, acknowledge things beyond critique. We need to be able to acknowledge, for instance, uh, the ways in which different uh, gay liberation groups or, or movements actually made positive differences in people's lives. I think that is sometimes, at least in the queer scholarship, something that scholars have a very difficult time admitting or grappling with. Is um, And I think this is also why... Uh, you know, there there is this disconnect between the sort of radical criticism and constructionism of queer theory and queer history, as opposed to the sort of essentialism of political movements. There's sort of this disconnect of, of you know, the sort of essentialism born this way, assimilationist um, program of gay movements in the last 20 or 30 years has been quite successful in delivering a 
more stable and better life for a lot of people who identify as through gay or the lesbian state or almost always. Also, and that's <laughs> yeah. the other thing, right? Through the state, um, and 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 that's something that I think some queer theorists are not really well suited to grapple with. Um, yeah. So that's all super fascinating. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like what you're saying is that at some point, let's say in the last 10 years, queer theory hit a, a type of wall, if you will? Yeah, I mean, I think there's some accuracy there. I mean, there's sort of been um, questioning about what sort of what comes next for queer theory. And there's been, you know, I think there's something reflexively critical about queer theory, which is is good. And, and so there have been various efforts or critiques of queer theory, for instance, queer of color critique, which has looked at how, um, you know, the field was mostly sort of white men and, and some white women who, who originated it and had these sort of very white bourgeois preoccupations. Um, there's been uh, these cri- sort of more Marxist critiques of queer theory. So, for instance, Chris Ritchie was a graduate student at Santa Cruz uh, who wrote a dissertation of, that sort of tried to wed uh, Foucault and Marx. He died several years ago, and but the dissertation was published as Sexual Hegemony with Duke a few years ago. And it's a, it's a fantastic book. And basically what he uh, is trying to do is explain both the class obsessions or preoccupations of queer theorists, um, and basically sort of saying this is really a field that comes out of the study of bourgeois literature of the 19th century, and how can it hope to actually be representative or interested in the sexual lives of working classes in particular. Um, And then he turns to actually historians of sexuality who have done work on this um, in particular. He uses the work of Michael Rokey, who's a historian of Renaissance Florence and who wrote a book about sodomy in Renaissance Florence and basically documented how prevalent it was. Basically, there's a period where you have a court, um, I believe called the Court of the Night, that is uh, charged with with investigating and, and um, punishing sodomites. And basically what he shows from what Roki shows looking at these records is that it was just incredibly prevalent. I, my memory, it's been a while since I read the book, my memory is that there are actually more cases than there are residents of Florence um, over this period of time. So it's just wildly prevalent. And so so Chitty goes back to look at this to sort of make um, a claim about the intersection of early capital and early markets with um, sodomy and sort of the prevalence of sodomy and, and sort of makes the case that this is something that's been totally ignored or not even intentionally ignored, it's just not in the set of questions that most queer theorists were, were um, interested in asking. Uh, so there's been those critiques, uh, and um, so as, as a result, queer theory has sort of expanded its scope. I mean, there's been an increased interest, as, as we've talked about, in trans studies, um, and that has been seen as a sort of promising new direction for the field. But at base, I do think that this impulse to critique is sort of self-consuming. And it does mean that in a certain way, queer theory has sort of hit a wall and doesn't know what to do with itself. And this is this is actually something I've even... Um, so I've been working for a while now on an essay um, about what a queer theory of the state would look like. And I find myself hitting a wall because it is really hard to to wed this extremely um, 
aggressive form of critique that underlies queer theory with any sort of positive vision of what a state can look like or what a state can do. Does that Uh, suggest anything about how social theory developed over the course of the 70s and 2000s and only using queer theory as an exemplar of larger social trends? Because that's something that I also located when I was in graduate school. And one of the reasons that I found Marxist theory so appealing was that it did have a positive program. It did have stakes um, in the world as opposed to, it wasn't queer theory I was mostly reading, but opposed to other forms of social theory or like what discipline and pun, you know, like these various classic works, Derrida critical theory, stuff like that. I mean, I think, you know, I guess, yes, I mean, I think this is not isolated to queer theory. I think this is very much a part of other sort of social theory in the sort of second half or last quarter of the the 20th century going into. Um, And, and, and it's also also just one point I want to make yeah. because I was thinking about this recently when the uh, Edward Said biography came out, and I think he's broadly part of this this mm-hmm. strand of thinking is that it's also the age of the literary superstar, which is ironic right. because the age the Paul Deman, Foucault, <laughs> Said, um, Judith Butler to some degree, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, she's a little later I think when she really takes off. But um, I think that you have this moment of incredible critique, you know, at this moment of like capitalism's total domination and also the literary superstar which could could you imagine an english professor being famous today it's literally impossible <laughs> yeah. you know it's a it's a huge shift in in the relative prestige of the disciplines you know it's english true. was number 1 in the 80s and it is it is not no longer but I, I don't know i was wondering if you had any thoughts about that phenomenon that's i mean that's a really interesting um you know i do think I, as we sort of already talked about, this is coming at a moment of waning confidence in the state on both the left and the right, right? I mean, this is sort of when neoliberalism takes off. Um, and and as um, various sort of scholars have started pointing out recently, it's not just happening on the right, right? This isn't just sort of Reagan and Thatcher. This is also, um, you know, figures like... Uh, I mean, Tony uh, Ralph Blair, Nader. Bill Clinton, Ralph well, Nader. Oh, right. I mean, I mean yeah. later on, I mean, with the, sort of yeah. in the 90s, but even in sort of in the sort of the 70s, you have, you know, sort of environmental movements. You have Ralph Nader. You have um, all these new sort of leftist coalitions that start, that have sort of gotten past or gotten over or, or are now more skeptical of the New Deal and the sort of relationships among big business unions and government that it engendered. Uh, and of course, I think the, you know, waning enthusiasm for the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. um, publicity of, you know, the Gulags and Afghanistan. Various, that was a big moment in right. how people viewed the Soviet It's like a, um, as big as Stalin and, and Khrushchev. It's Afghanistan. Right. right. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, the, the publication of Gulag Archipelago is a right. massive event. So, you know, there are all these events that sort of lead to a um, crisis of confidence on the left, really. Um, and that's something that isn't reflected both in sort of theory and 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 scholarly study as well as in how activist movements are framing themselves and their goals and i think this is um you know and and i guess the other fact of the matter is that sort of the new deal and other governments other sort of governments that had these large social projects sort of in the middle of the 20th century um were exclusionary and violent and imperfect, right? It's not. It's not as though they these groups or these new methods were critiquing nothing, right? There, there was oh, there was a there yeah. there to critique, course, and um, and so I think finding a way 
of and that of course is is one of the critiques of of Marxist theory, right? Is that it sort of subsumes or, or has a tendency to subsume everything to class and sort of ignore other forms of difference. So, you know, I guess one thing I'm very interested in uh, is finding ways of bridging these divides and. Yeah, I, interse- and I, not that I'm, intersectional I'm social theory. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's a, it's an issue that I think about a lot because like there's so many insights from from social theory of the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, and and there's been a, a sort of reaction isn't isn't the word, but I think post 2008 there's been a Marxist pushback. Yes, um, and I think for oftentimes good reasons there there's a there there to yes. criticize. <laughs> but I yeah, feel no. like yeah, and but I feel like in in the modern academy today I, I don't. It's interesting. I think about in our field of history, and tell me if you think I'm wrong. There has not been a a trend in in that that has that has really permeated all subdisciplines, all times and periods, like the linguistic turn or the quote unquote yeah. cultural turn of the 80s and the 90s. There was a bit of post colonial theory, and I think some post colonial insights have been embedded in most fields in history, and in in, in particular fields, post colonial theory really does dominate in a way, mm-hmm. but. There's been what I think a, a, a return to the archive in our field, which to mm-hmm. me is just a, a function of a, the return to Marxism in a sense, is that we're going to go, we're going to look at documents, we're going to reconstruct stories, and we're going to say, V.S. Gewesenist, you know, how things really happened, yes. a la Leopold von Ranke. <laughs> um, so I was wondering if you think that this is an accurate description of our field of history and what your understanding of why there hasn't been basically our entire academic careers there has not been a trend there's been like transnational but that even when we entered in like yeah. the late aughts it, it was never as powerful because the state is just so important and even right i think the big thing with transnational is that kind of like similar to what you were saying about queer theory for transnational histories the locus of influence always winds up being the state you know it's can right. these transnational movements affect the state um, so I don't know. I was just wondering. There was a lot there, but I'd love to get your your opinion. Yeah. No, that's that's a really. I mean, you know, I think in the last couple years, one thing that I guess I have seen. It's not so much a theory or a, a but but one question that I think increasingly is preoccupying everyone is that of race. Um, and it's not. But it's that's not quite been the going same on as, for a while. I mean, that's like, true. But but it, I guess in 30, my 40 years, yeah. I mean, it's, it's just not one of the major subjects, you know, like you cannot be yeah. a historian without right. being aware of race, without being aware of gender, gender. No, you're right. sexuality you're right. and class. You know, those it, are like the big four for historians that like, yeah. whatever you do, you, you have to, to be, be aware of those big four. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good point. But no, I, I agree. There, there's certainly no sort of methodological shift other than, as you said, going back to the archives. And, you know, I think historians are, history is already sort of a somewhat more conservative field. It's super among conservative, ontologically and epistemologically. Right. Very right, right. I mean, we, we believe in facts in a certain right. way that, that some of our colleagues and other yeah, departments Things happen, definitely. Right, <laughs> right. I mean, one of my, so I help run a um, queer studies reading group at Mason. Um, which is great, and it sort of brings together people from graduate students and scholars, and you know, from from all different sort of uh, fields within the humanities and social sciences. And we try and read sort of a variety of different texts to keep everyone interested and expose people to new things. And one of our very first discussions, there was a colleague who I like a lot, but we were sort of, I was saying, well, I wanted more facts, for for lack of a better or more nuanced word. You know, I wanted to know what actually was going on in, it was a book about um, 
sort of queer sexualities in, in the early Americas. And I, I wanted more information. And, and this colleague said, well, I don't really care what actually happened. And it was just this very stark moment of, of saying or realizing, oh, you know, you're in English. It, you have a very different relationship epistemologically to sort of what quote unquote actually happened. Um, and so I think history already had that. I do think European history and German history tends to be a particularly epistemologically conservative field within yeah, it's the where it all began baby <laughs> right i mean we you know ranka is one of us and yeah. and it sort of never went away i mean if you look at the german burkhart, academy you know all of them it's like radically historicist Jakob yeah. burkhart you know uh, yeah. the Heusinga, all mm-hmm. those guys radical historicism yeah oh absolutely and and you know i think there's very i think there's these sort of deeper historical reasons for it i also think the fact of not of nazism plays a role right that that um, you don't want to get too the, airy in your thinking a little bit. You want to no. stay close to the ground. Yes, exactly. I mean, there's there both are the archives, right? I mean, <laughs> Germany has two of like the governments of modern history that that were most interested in just like meticulously detailing everything they did, right? Both East right. Germany and, and Nazi Germany, they're just these massive records that we have. And so working your way through them is itself a, a task. And you in some ways don't have any time left or any interest left for sort of fancy theories to overlay on top of that archival work. But I also think, as you said, there's like a moral component to it. You don't want to sort of be (laughs) diminishing the Holocaust by coming up with all sorts of fancy theories about it. Um, And so, so I do think that there's that element to it, but if you look at, um, and and just very quickly, mm -hmm. I think there's been some like, like the, the, I don't know if you remember this. I think this was an early two thousands thing where the book, the hidden Hitler came out. And do you remember that book about Hitler being a closeted gay man? Oh, vague. The, I, it's not something I've yeah. ever engaged with deeply. Right, yes, exactly. That, that's exactly, right? So you have these also popular understandings mm-hmm. that I think right. mitigate against this sort of using like this high theory because it can right. be vulgarized so easily yes. to, to, to kind of distasteful ends. Oh, yes, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, oh <laughs> Well, I just, I just reviewed a book that sort of engaged, a popular book that sort of engaged in some of that. And it was a book about American history, but talked a little bit about these theories that, that Hitler might have been gay and, and not the best way, I think. And, you know, and I actually, I, I was on a different podcast a, a couple months ago um, where the host a- sort of asked me, well, do you think Hitler was gay? And I... <laughs> No, <laughs> but also, who cares? Um, yeah. Anyway, and, but, then, and, and then that does does that become the explanation for the Holocaust? Like, what are you asking? Right, right, you know, right? exactly. That, that, is, like, that is the implied question: or, Was Hitler right, gay, or, and is that the reason the Holocaust happened? Right, or or is that where fascism comes from? Right. I mean that right. that is is something that gets pushed by certain sort of Soviet propagandists in the 30s. Right? right. Is that there's this essential connection between homosexuality and fascism? Yeah, um, and, and it's interesting. And, the Americans go for the neuter explanation that Hitler didn't have uh, testicles. Right. Yeah, I'm sure you've read the, the, the secret OSS report where that's their explanation. Yes, sexuality yes. comes in, but in a different way. Right. Right. That's can be an illustration, I think, of of the sort of I don't want to say confusion, but but how the idea of, of homosexuality or sexuality has changed over time, right? That there used to be this notion that, oh, if you are for some reason more effeminate, then you're more likely to be homosexual. Or if you're homosexual, you're more likely to be effeminate. Um, and sort of, you know, we we today using essentialist frameworks would say it's sort of confusing gender and sex and sexuality, which we today see as three distinct things. But of course, we're in the early 20th century, just a big muddle that that 
people did not really distinguish between. But sort of uh, go back to your original question about sort of the penetration of different theories into to the work of history. And in Germany, I mean, the, the academy in Germany is much more conservative, as, as maybe you're familiar. It, it, queer oh. theory is not really... Nice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not a thing there. Um, even getting, you know, the history of sexuality accepted as a, as a legitimate sort of discipline has taken a lot of work and is, is maybe a decade or two behind uh, where the U.S. is. Uh, and so, I mean, it's, it's actually quite... It, it, whenever I pause to think about it, it's quite um, uh, demotivating that I have... I mean, what's quite motivating and wonderful is that in the U.S. and Canada and England, I have so many wonderful colleagues who work on the German history of sexuality. I mean, it's a really great community of scholars. But then when we go to Germany, we do have colleagues, but they tend to be in precarious positions. They are not awarded professorships. Um, and so they're very much, you know, what they can work on is driven by these big grants that they're able to get to, to give them these positions that are not permanent. Yeah, this um, classic five-year fellowship that, that oh, is throughout yes. Europe. Yeah. Yep, yeah. yep. And so... Uh, anyway, all that is to say that I, I, I agree that I think there hasn't been a new overarching theory or methodology to sort of, you know, replace the linguistic turn or the cultural turn. Um, and and I, I remember when I was in grad school, you know... Uh, what year did you enter? I entered in 2013 and finished in 2019. Got it. And... Uh, history of capitalism was really big. I feel like it, transnational or international history was sort of already waning a bit. Um, and I initially was sort of worried about, oh, will I be able to get a job working in Germany? And, you know, by the time I was going on the job market, it was not at all a concern that, uh, um, but the history of capitalism, I remember being quite a big thing, but again, not something as sort of a, a topic, niche, you know, as a yeah, topic, right? Yeah, yeah. It's not an approach. And, and, right. and to me, I think my explanation for this is that the, the eradication of the job market effectively yeah. has, has made graduate students understandably depressed, and graduate students are where intellectual ferment comes from. That's so you have true. a generation of people who have one foot out of the academy from day one, and so they're not going to be focused on trying to, to, to build a lot, of this, um, a lot of this social theory. That's plus true. the return to Marxism, plus the return... Yeah. To socialism broadly in the U.S. Yeah. context. No, I think I think I think both of those are true. I also do. I mean, and I, I sort of wonder if politically, the challenge to liberalism will produce any similar because you know there's this there was a, i mean like fukuyama right there's a sense that in the 90s it's the end of ideology it's the end of of um the sort of you know liberalism and capitalism have won hooray and of course now that all seems in, insane that anyone not here in american prestige we're a podcast of and about the end of history <laughs> <laughs> but we're hoping uh, to contribute to the end of history right. in some way. <laughs> I've now lost my train of thought. I, I basically it, it just I it also you're feels, welcome. <laughs> <laughs> it's the end of my my train of thought. Uh, but about uh, liberalism producing. Oh, a just of I mean, antimony. I also wonder to what extent it's a generational shift. It's not only just that you know we're depressed and sort of thinking about what else we'll do with our lives, and also how to like make ourselves you know in this horribly neoliberal way sort of marketable outside of the academy. Right. Um, but also, I just grew up in this sort of golden era, right, as a privileged white kid in in the middle of America in this era when it did sort of seem like, okay, we've won, everything's great, 
there are no serious problems left. Um, and we've sort of been robbed of the historical impetus that perhaps, you know, because history, history and historical methodologies are always tied to what's going on at that particular moment. Is sort of No, been, not me. I'm a free-floating intellectual, <laughs> right, right. speaking for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and so I do wonder to what extent, is, you know, people in, in our generation grew up without the same sort of political battles, or, or they were much more subdued and only really, I mean, at least in my own historical consciousness, I mean, 2016 was this massive sort of wake-up call. And I actually remember feeling, in the lead-up to 2016, feeling this almost depression of, oh, well, Hillary will win, and we're just going to have this sort of boring, ineffective, ineffectual, neoliberal status quo forever. And so while Donald Trump was, of course, horrifying, it was also this moment of possibility things were opening up right things the were first time in up. our lives i think right. in a real way i think the the, the cold war was not really that 9-11 was not really that it was no. just on steroids yeah. uh sort of previous trends on steroids and and now it does feel like something new right and 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 that newness i think actually calls for new approaches to history in a way that nothing in our lifetimes had up until that point and yet we are existing in this moment where the field is effectively disappearing as a profession. You know, yeah. it's, we're, it's returning to to the to uh, the field of the um, pre-World War II, 19th century periods, yep. where it's just going to be for people who have means. You know, you yes. cannot you cannot lose five plus years, five being generous, usually more, on uh, of your earnings potential, you know, in your 20s any longer, with a, yeah. a guarantee basically of no job. And I, I don't, I don't think people quite real in the field quite realize the anger that is percolating understandably throughout. Yeah. Yeah, no, and and it also, I mean I think, you know, universities are also well there's so many we could talk for an hours about all the problems with universities today, right? But no, I think but they're perfect. It, oh, right, yes, of course. <laughs> no change is necessary. Uh I loved mine so much I left so that it wouldn't be polluted with my <laughs> Yeah, Derek was anymore. a medieval a historian of medieval Iran, right? Early Derek? modern Iran. Yeah. Early oh, modern. Wow. Or, well, yeah. late late medieval, early modern, yeah. I assume you know um, Afsan Najmabadi's work. Or, um, I'm, I'm familiar or, with it, yeah. Okay. She, I mean, yeah. you know, I, I oftentimes assign her work in my history of sexuality courses, um, which I know virtually nothing about Iran other than what <laughs> what she has written, but <laughs> but I just it's it's so interesting, and she does a good job of I think of sort of bringing people into it that that you can sort of you can still assign it. Anyway, that's a total tangent, but um oh I just I I mean also I feel like we're sort of going back to this 19th century model of like you you know professors who get paid by like directly by their students almost right it's like how many students do you have in your classroom great that'll be your salary because you know there are um, at Mason were allocated resources based on how many students we teach and what's it called a a not a b d activity based budgeting a b b activity based a, b, budgeting, right something like that yeah or right? it's eat like what you kill activity. if we're being a little more <laughs> vulgar <laughs> uh but you know and, and in some ways of course that has the the weird benefit of sort of showing people that in fact all these areas that they love like medicine or the hard sciences are in fact not quote-unquote productive right they they sort of cost a lot of money but um 
because that's always sort of one of these weird excuses to, to 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 gut humanities or social sciences is that they aren't bringing in money or they're not you know no one is, is interested in taking them and and we should focus on the hard sciences but but we obviously need the hard sciences too right that's not actually a good nope not on this of- podcast we're only <laughs> humanities no hard sciences we're anti anti hard sciences we practice leeching. Yes. yes. I was going to say, I'm very happy with my COVID vaccines, so I would like to keep... Well, we we actually uh, abide by the humors theory of medicine, (laughs) that we have four humors, various biles that are are either in sync or in Mm -hmm, not. mm -hmm. So yes, so we reject modern science, but I'll I'll allow you to speak here on the podcast (laughs) for the first time. (laughs) Anyway, but yes, universities are horribly managed, and yes the profession is in crisis. And I also don't know what to do about it. I mean, that's the other thing is I sort of feel like, as I'm sure you sometimes feel, Danny, like I somehow have sort of made it and yet right. don't have no idea how to actually sort of change things for the better and, and help the young Faculty colleagues. power has been just destroyed. It has. You know? yeah. yeah. It's just faculty just have, have very little practical power. It's a, we're, we're leaving the Cold War university totally behind. Like, we, we, we came up in its last vestiges, and now it's totally going to be a new thing. I had, can I tell a story, actually? Because I had my faculty advisor, when I was studying late medieval, early modern Iran, had this theory that the, the university of the future would be, like, 10 full-time faculty members who were stuck in the library all the time. And you would just hire, like out-of-work actors from central casting to teach the courses and they would get the material from, you know, the 10 faculty members and and that would be the way the university functioned. And we're returning, I mean, like, there's a turn toward that, generally speaking, particularly Mm -hmm. when you look um, below the R1s, you know, just very, very contingent faculty constantly doing work and a a small number of people doing actual research. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it. it's another sort of you know, of course, publishing a book is a, a happy moment, but there's also this sort of fear that you're publishing for a rapidly diminishing group right. of people. And I think uh, that that is why you've seen so many people turn to the public sphere, quote unquote, mm-hmm. to, to bring Habermas in uh, as we end up here. <laughs> because uh, one, you have to start thinking about other careers. And two, yeah. in the past, when you spent 10 years on a book, you could be relatively certain that there would be at least graduate students who would read it. There would be future right. generations of people. But in an era where there's just less and less certainty of there being future generations of historians, it becomes increasingly difficult to justify to oneself to spend so much time on something that so few people will read. At least that's my understanding from my own experiences and talking to colleagues. Yeah. Can no, I just I've, say thank thank God you brought Habermas into the conversation <laughs> because I was I've been sitting here waiting for some He's been time very now impatient, and, folks. <laughs> yes. So on that happy note, Samuel Uniki, thank you so much for joining us. Next time we'll actually talk about your book. But this has been a really illuminating discussion of a lot of social theory of the last half century. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's been great. Thank you.